I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Catherine Morgan Schaffler is a psychotherapist and the author of The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. In her book, she outlines five different types of perfectionistic profiles. There's the classic, intense, Parisian, messy, and the procrastinator. And she says that by identifying which of these profiles you are, instead of seeing it through a negative connotation and lens and seeing how this is something to be fixed, you can manage who you are, see what works for you, embrace your identity, and enjoy who you are because being a perfectionist has this negative frame around it. But really, if you flip it, there's a positive side to all of the identities and profiles. And perfectionism doesn't need to be seen as maladaptive. It can be seen through the lens of something that's incredibly positive, motivating, and a superpower. In case you're wondering, there is a quiz online, and who doesn't love an online quiz? There's a quiz online where you can see which of these personality perfectionistic types you have. No surprise to just about anyone who knows me, I am a messy perfectionist. So yeah, and I'm not going to ruin the surprise by telling you what that means now. I'll let you listen to this and make your own decisions based on what Catherine has to say about what a messy perfectionist means. I pretty much agree with everything she had to say. I came across your book, The Perfectionist Guide for Losing Control. And obviously the name jumped out and just like spoke to me. I was like, what does this mean? And also, am I a perfectionist? Why is it speaking to me? Yeah. And I love the title and you take such an interesting look at perfectionism and looking at it through the lens of it not being a negative instead of looking at it like it's a superpower. And how do you use it for your best advantage instead of having it become like this negative thing that you're this like, you know, toxic person who has to be fixed. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. That's a great rebranding of perfectionism. My pleasure. You know, perfectionism is something that everybody in commercial wellness talks about as if we know everything about it. And it's talked about in this really one-dimensional way that is incongruent with how we talk about it in the research world, which I, you know, I present in the perfectionist guide to losing control. There's a thing called adaptive perfectionism. It's when you can use your perfectionism to help you and heal you. And there's something called maladaptive perfectionism, which is the perfectionism. I think we all think of that you're talking about the toxic, you know, negative, very harmful in many ways, kinds of perfectionism. And the thing about perfectionism is if you're a perfectionist, that's an enduring identity. Like you can't get rid of it. It's like being a romantic or being an activist or being an artist. It's it's a part of who you are. A true romantic 
can try to be practical half the time and romantic the other half of the time, but it's not going to work. You know, the better strategy is to say, it's great that you're a romantic, amazing, wonderful. Don't change anything about who you are. Now, the boundaries that you have around your romanticism and your love and your relationships, you need to put those in place. Otherwise, you're gonna, your romanticism is going to get you in trouble. You can't just be open-hearted to everyone all the time, no matter what. And I treat perfectionism in the same way. What do you see as the upsides? Yeah. What are the good parts about perfectionism in your, in your opinion? Yeah. So perfectionism, when it was first introduced in psychological literature, was about this innate, natural human impulse to connect and contribute. So I use the example of if a perfectionist wants to solve world hunger and you know 50% of people in the world are starving and the perfectionist bridges that gap to 95% of the people in the world are now fed and only 5% are not starving. A perfectionist is going to treat that 5% and approach that 5% in exact same way as they did before they had achieved nothing. You know, and so it's that kind of vigor and that kind of dedication that I think is coming from a place of, I want to be all of who I am. I want to contribute as much as I can. That's perfectionism in its natural kind of state. It's this unique quality we have as human beings, which is we can see the reality in front of us, but we can also imagine this other reality ahead of us, a better reality. And we can also imagine a worse off reality. And no other species does that. That's a human thing. And perfectionists are just people who see the ideal and the reality and feel this active compulsion to try to bridge the gap. And if we didn't have perfectionists in the world, we wouldn't make progress because idealists also see the ideal and they love it, but they're happy just dreaming about it, you know? And realists are like, well, it is the way it is. So perfectionists can't let go of that active quality. And that's what I think is so beautiful about it. And so healthy. It's like perfectionists can't help themselves. And thank God, because, you know, when you direct that energy in a really intentional value-driven way, it's such a beautiful thing to express. Do you feel like in the research and in your personal experience as a therapist, that there's a connotation that's very gendered about perfectionism and that kind of the clues in society and in culture make it like women are perfectionists, men are not, they're just like super high achievers. And if there are perfectionists, it's because they're geniuses and women- who are perfectionists are seen as like strivers and there's like a negative undertone to it. They should Mm -hmm. be more kind of adaptive and and feminine. 100% you're bringing up a really important, brilliant point, which is that we are talking about a highly gendered term, right? And so in the same way that remember like a decade-ish ago when Sheryl Sandberg really pushed for people to stop calling girls bossy. Yeah. And she was identifying the regulatory function of the word bossy, meaning like what we're trying to kind of curb young girls and women to do is to not be authoritative. 
right? And so we often say to young girls, stop being bossy, stop being sassy, you know? And the subtext of that is like the authoritative qualities you're demonstrating right now are not feminine. You got to put them in check. And that's how we're using the term perfectionist right now. So it absolutely, to answer your question, has a negative connotation. So many more women are called perfectionists and are told, find balance. You got to be a little more balanced. Don't sweat the small stuff. Like the subtext of that is you're being too intense. You're wanting too much. You're a little too driven. You know, the word perfectionist is a way that we are implicitly trying to stamp out expressions of power in women. So you're absolutely right. Like if we think about male perfectionists, like James Cameron, classic, you know, male perfectionists, Steve Jobs, these people are considered visionaries. They're considered alpha males. Um, When we think about women who seek power, they're often described as power hungry, right? Or, you know, like an Anna Wintour, for example, just like cold, the devil wears Prada. There's like um, villainizing of that Serena Williams. Such a good point. Serena Williams, self-proclaimed perfectionist. She's assertive. She likes being visible in what she wears, what she says, all this stuff. And she is penalized for it in literal ways. It costs her games and, you know, in so many other ways. And so women who in this moment in time don't hide their ambition and express power in perfectly healthy ways are told often, you know, you're being too much of a perfectionist, just you got to balance out. And that's a really negative directive for so many reasons that I I dedicate a whole chapter in the book to it because I'd like to just kind of nip that in the bud. (laughs) Like, can we not do that, please? I think about this also, like think about it just from early childhood, right? I know you're not an early childhood expert, but you have now a little child and I'm raising two boys. And it's been really eye-opening in terms of my perspective on feminism and just the way that we like gender things in society because little girls, in my experience, this is my observations, bend more towards perfectionism from the get-go. You know, they are much more, I see, you know, the girls my son's age and the boys my son's age, the girls are so on it. They're Mm -hmm. organized for the most part. They're Mm -hmm. organized. They're on their homework. They understand the rules. It's like their prefrontal cortex is much more solid and active at a younger age where the boys are like sloppy, messy, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're doing it and they're getting there, but it's not in the same way in which the girls are getting there. It's like, they're on very different paths forward. And so in some ways by making it a negative, that that's how the women are by nature, moving forward in their growth and maturity, we're like bringing them down 100%. to the level of where the men are instead of making the men be more leaning towards their own perfectionism and excellence and striving and organization. So we're like going to the lowest common denominator instead of instead of supporting what is really a more evolved and adaptive way of being. Yes. I mean, what you're hitting up upon is the way in which our own internalized as parents, internalized 
idea of what gender is impacts the way we raise our kids. And I believe that the most powerful people in the world can harness both masculine and feminine energy. And if we want to heal the world, we need to allow our boys to be soft. We need to allow them to cry more. We need to allow them to be more gentle. And we need to, in addition to allowing them to being rough and and tumble and whatever, and we need to allow our girls to be, I want to say, because this is the fastest way to say it, like a little more rude, Mm -hmm. a little more like unapologetic, authentic, a little more all the way on the other side, because, you know, it's like, if you think of the nicest person, you know, trying to be nasty or say something nasty, they're still going to say something really considerate. Right. And so our girls are not just going out into the world, hearing the messages that we tell them, they're going to hear the messages of the world, which are so much more limiting. And so in my house, I'm overcorrecting for that by allowing my daughter to be more on the like aggressive side. Whereas if everything was the way it should be, the ideal, I would try to curb her aggression over to assertive because that's the healthier expression of, you know, communication and expressing yourself is like assertive aggressive, is a great word, assertive, aggressive. And we all, of course, want our kids to be assertive. Yeah. Assertive is the way to, to be. Right. But like the reality is, it's like, she's going to go into the world and if she's assertive, she's going to be told she's being aggressive. And so she needs to learn how to be both because that's the unfortunate reality is that, you know, women have to, and they're going to incur penalties for the way that they have to demand attention, respect, credit for their work, space, all of those things. Okay. Let's just backtrack for a hot second. You, I want to get into your background and, and how you came up with this book, like where the idea came from, you know, you've spent a lot of years as a therapist working, Mm -hmm. you know, with patients, and now you've moved into becoming an author soon to be releasing your next book, which is very exciting. Tell us more about you and how you wound up focusing on perfectionism. Right. Well, I don't know about the soon to be releasing part. Publishing is a slow industry, but um, I started this book because I worked in getting everyone excited. (laughs) I worked in so many different clinical contexts, right? I used to work in residential treatment in LA with kids who were abused and neglected severely in the foster care system. So they became wards of the state and lived in this residential treatment center. And that was a lot of trauma and a lot of really heavy healing. And so I worked with that population. I worked in a rehab in Brooklyn. I worked, you know, as the onsite therapist at Google, very international population, all different kinds of ages. I had a private practice on Wall Street. And so I had this constellation of different demographics, different ages, different cultures, different socioeconomic statuses. And I found that perfectionism was present in all of them in both adaptive ways and maladaptive ways, healthy and unhealthy ways. And it just made me realize how tiny our perspective of what a perfectionist is, is. Like we think of this type A person 
who's preppy and punctual and, you know, a little bit maybe uptight. And actually perfectionism presents itself in this kaleidoscopic kind of way, right? So perfectionism is about chasing an ideal and ideals can be interpersonal, right? As they are for me often, like I want to have ideal connections, right? I call that type of perfectionist in the book, the Parisian perfectionist, right? And so a Parisian perfectionist could have like a standard nine to five job, which they do, you know, a mediocre performance at because their perfectionism is expressed wanting to be the perfect friend, the perfect partner, the perfect mom, the perfect something relational based. And then perfectionism can also be expressed cognitively in the way we think. I want to perfectly understand this. This shows up in grief a lot. Like I want to understand why this person died and why now this doesn't make sense or why I didn't get this job interview or why my partner left me. Like I want to know that. And we have this feeling that if we can control the knowing, then we can feel better, which is not true. So in the book, you have, you have five different types of perfectionists mm-hmm. right? you've outlined. They're the classic, the intense, the Parisian, the messy, and the procrastinator. Mm-hmm. And what I love also is that you have a quiz. So obviously yeah. I took it. I love a quiz. I mean, who doesn't love a quiz? Love a quiz. So that mm-hmm. was very cool. And I am 53% messy mm. perfectionist and 14% equally throughout the rest. Wow. Then, interesting. Did that surprise you? Uh, no, mm. it didn't. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean for those? Like interpret that for the... Okay. So messy perfectionists are in love with starting. So the beginning is perfect and their strengths, each profile has strengths and weaknesses and messy perfectionists, just zero anxiety about starting something. Not only zero anxiety, but they are excited about it. They have natural momentum, natural enthusiasm, tell everyone about it. It's amazing. They can hit trouble if they're not managing their perfectionism when they get to the annoying sort of slow tedium of the middle of the process. Because at that point, the perfection and romanticized like beginning where anything is possible has crumbled. And you're like having to apply for a license for your new business. And you're like, I don't know how to do this. I don't want to do this. And so that's sort of messy perfectionist. Procrastinator perfectionists are the counterpart to messy perfectionists. So they want the beginning to feel perfect, but it doesn't. They never feel ready. So these are people who are so thoughtful. They have great impulse control, which is such an asset. Messy perfectionist, not necessarily a strength of theirs, impulse control. And once they get going, they can really follow through and are very thorough in all the stuff, but they just always feel like I'm not quite ready yet. And this is so interesting because it's not just about aversive stuff, like starting a project at work that you don't want to do or doing your taxes. It's also about exciting stuff, like planning a trip, going on a vacation, starting dating again, something that you do really want, but you just feel like, oh, I'll be ready when, and you end up just delaying it over and over again and and feeling this paralysis, right? Parisian perfectionists, as we talked about, they want perfect connections, So these are people who are genuinely inclusive, warm, you know, you don't have to explain to a Parisian perfectionist how important relationships are 
to your well-being. They just get it. They just know. Like if I if I achieve all of this stuff and have nobody to share it with and connect with, like for what? What I don't even want that. So you don't have to explain that to them. But they can want connection so bad and take shortcuts to connection that ends up looking like really toxic people pleasing. So that's where they get in trouble. Intense perfectionists like the end of the process to be perfect. So these are people who are focused on the outcome. So we talked about like a Steve Jobs earlier. That's a perfect, intense perfectionist. These people have razor sharp focus. They don't care if other people around them like them or not, which is you know, the opposite of a Parisian perfectionist who does care about that. And they are going to get the job done. The problem is that sometimes they're so over-indexed on achieving the goal that it's like, great, you got your family on this trip on time and look around at the dinner table. Everybody is miserable. You know, it's like you forget in the process to take care of your own well-being and the well-being of others. And the last one is the classic perfectionist, which is like what we think of most when we think of perfectionists. So these are people who do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it in the way they said they would do it. They're highly reliable. And on the con side, sometimes classic perfectionists can end up feeling transactional for with people because they ascribe to the motto of like, I want you to do this, but I also want it to be done the way I want it to be done. So I'm going to do it. You know, and like, if you want something done well, do it yourself. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to collaboration and the connection that you get from working on a team. And also classic perfectionists can feel really taken for granted because it's like, sure, I will, you know, make the deck, plan the party, do the things. And I like doing that, but that doesn't mean that I don't want acknowledgement. And so it's kind of like, oh yeah, give it to her. She always does that. She knows how to do that. She does that well. She could do it in her sleep. It's like, well, yeah, that's true. But don't take me for granted, you know? I would assume that these, you know, these are obviously generalized, but if you are, if you fall in a category, does that mean that you fall in that category in all areas of your life? Or is it like show up in some areas, but other areas you can be a different type of perfectionist? Such a great question. So perfectionism is context dependent, meaning like you can be a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating and love the first date, the second date. And when then when you get to the third date and the person is like chewing really loudly or something, or they mispronounce a word, like they say library without the R, who knows what, right? You're like, oh, game over. It's done. Like it's no longer perfect and, and it's done. But you can be an intense perfectionist when it comes to work. Or you can be, for example, an intense perfectionist at work and come home to a house that looks like it just got ransacked, right? Because you don't have any classic perfectionism in you and your outcome and goals are really more work-themed than they are aesthetically themed or driven. I have seen people from my own experience who I would say fall into all of these categories in different capacities. And I see a lot of women I know who fall into a trap of perfectionism when it comes to the balance in their home lives. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I'm the only one who can load the dishwasher because it has to be done right the right way. Mm-hmm. I have to micromanage the homework um, mm-hmm. and the schedule because if it's not done this way, it's not done right whatever it is, you know, they wind up people who are by nature 
lean this way, taking on so much. And then there's like a huge amount of resentment or mm-hmm. burnout or just like stress that leads them to some of it's like, if I can't do it all the right way, then I'm not going to do it. I'm going to quit my job. Right. Because yeah, I can't take, I can't be this version of my own like intense perfectionist or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not doing it this way, then something's got to give. And it's either like my marriage, my job, my something. It's too much. Yeah. yeah I love that. No one's ever described it that way before. That sense of it's really high stakes when there's yeah. no middle ground for you to kind of, there's no off ramp. And I have very strong thoughts and opinions about this word balance. I don't know one balanced woman. I think the idea of balance and leading a balanced life is total bullshit. I think it's not only a false idea, but it is also really dangerous to try and achieve because first of all, the directive to be balanced, if you look at advertising campaigns, all of these different sort of ways that you can tap into the pulse of the zeitgeist are all directed at women. You know, you'll see things like I was in Soho when my book came out and I saw this ad for a clothing company with this woman. I put it on my Instagram account with this woman holding a baby in one hand and a laptop in the other. And it said, balance it. Like you can balance it or like you're a super mom or there's all these sort of terms to describe what we do to women, which is we hand them this boulder. That 20 year old was in charge of that one. Oh, for sure. (laughs) We hand them this boulder of balance, you know, and then we say something like, oh, we know this is impossibly heavy. That's why you're a super mom. And then we just leave them alone to, to feel like failures. And it's so cruel and terrible. And I really get into this in the book of like, you have got to understand that balance is not real. And I invite people to think about what do you really want, right? This is a book about perfectionism, but it's more so a book about this question that has befuddled me personally many times over and will again, because who I am changes. So what I want changes. And when you ask yourself, like, what do I really want? You have to examine what your values are. And values are tough because all values sound good on paper. It's like honesty, integrity, courage. When you see a value list, it's like, well, who doesn't want to be those things? But you must choose. You have to pick. And I suggest people pick at least three to five values. And you know, living authentically is not about telling everyone all your business all the time. It's not about doing this or that. It's about living in alignment such that your values and your actions make sense. And so if your, you know, value is structure, then good, make sure the dishwasher is loaded. That's really important to you that your home look a certain way. Wonderful. Understand that you can't have 20 top values, right? And so decide and be intentional about what you're choosing to dedicate your energy to and what you're choosing to not dedicate your energy to. Because if you choose, if you see a values list and you're like, I'm going to do and be and enact all of those things, you are hemorrhaging energy. You will not do any of the things because we have limitations as human beings of patience, you know, physical limitations. We need sleep. We need rest. We need all of that stuff. And so, you know, that's the end of the 
book. The first half of the book is like describing all of this stuff and and kind of giving a lay of the land and language. And the second half is like, now let's talk about you. What do you actually want? What are you willing to say? This is no longer that important to me. And I think when women ask themselves that question, the answer has a lot to do with the things that I'll just speak for myself. When I have thought about like what is really important to me and me feeling like a good parent and me being really engaged in work that's meaningful to me, what I end up quote unquote dropping the ball on, another phrase I don't like, is stuff that makes my partner's life a lot easier, but that he could easily do. That's stuff that serves, you know, the people around me that really could and should be doing a lot of what I do for them, you know, or just allowing someone else to step in. And I remember a therapist telling me once, I think it was about getting everything ready for the holidays. Cause I like my house to be like the fun house and the house where everyone gathers. And, and sometimes that has backfired on me because I invite like all my whole family at all once. And it's too much for me. I've learned, but I remember her saying like, if you don't do it, someone else will do it. And what I discovered was that's not true. If I don't make sure my daughter sends thank you pictures to everyone who sent her a birthday present, they don't get sent. If I don't, you know, do X, Y, and Z, it doesn't get done. And so you have to really be okay with that and see these pockets of your life in which things are not getting done and not perceive them as failings on your part, but perceive them as your understanding of your values and your limitations as a person. I was going to ask you how much of perfectionism is an adaptation to really either mask or cure a fear of failure. Well, that's the whole or of maladaptive perfectionism. So if you think about it as like, do you play to win or do you play to not lose? Healthy perfectionists play to win. They're excited about winning. Maladaptive, unhealthy perfectionists play to not lose. They play so that they don't fail, right? They feel like they're already inadequate in some way. And so a lot of their motivations are compensatory. They're trying to make up for the fact that, you know, for example, I am not the smartest person in the room or I feel inadequate in this way. So I'm going to make sure that I present so, you know, um, polished and perfect because that, that at least can make up for a little bit of all these inadequacies I feel inside that I'm trying to hide, that I'm scared make me a failure, you know? And if anyone listening is wondering like, oh, I wonder if I'm a healthy perfectionist or an unhealthy perfectionist, like, let me kill the suspense. Everybody is both. Mental health is so much more fluid than we currently understand it to be. So we like to make these check boxes of like, am I depressed or not depressed? Am I this or am I that? And actually mental health operates on a spectrum. And we use the categorical models of like, here's the diagnosis. Do you meet these five criteria? Because we need some kind of structure to help understand when situations are severe or becoming worse or becoming better. But the truth is that depending on who you're with, how stressed you are, how many resources you have at the time, whether you just had a baby, whether you just had surgery, like all of these other factors 
those are things that impact your mental health also. And so I include perfectionism in that. That's really interesting to think of it as a spectrum because like you said before, it's really dependent on the situation, on you know your upbringing, on so many different areas. And maybe the adaptive part of it is just reading something like your book and being aware of who you are, how you operate in different situations, why you operate that way. So that when it happens, when things come up, when you're in a situation or you find yourself doing something that you think isn't the right aligned behavior for your intention, then you can like check yourself. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Mental health is not about the absence of struggle. It's about the presence of support. And so you can be dealing with the exact same problem. Let's just say your car won't start. And if you have a lot of support around you and you text a friend like, my car won't start, and she texts you back something funny and da, 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 and then you have some kind of like connection through that, that's going to be a lot easier than if you feel like your car breaks down and you have no friends and then you just spiral and then you just, you know, and it's, it's not the event or the things that are happening necessarily. It's how much connection to ourselves we feel and how much connection to others we feel that makes the difference between a challenge and a struggle. And this is a lot of postpartum stuff because women often feel so unsupported in the sense that they are physically isolated because you can't just carry a newborn everywhere and you're still bleeding or you're still this or you're still that. And that's what makes, you know, seeing the dishes pile up in the dishwasher and like other things feel like such a high definition version of failure to people because it's like, there's a sense of isolation there, you know? So perfectionism operates in the same way. It's, it's so much more fluid than we understand it, it to be. I can't tell you how much what you're saying resonates and how much I think it it's so helpful for people to, we read a lot and you can read a lot about mental health and mindfulness and all these things, but through the lens of perfectionism and seeing it as a strength instead of a weakness is such a good reframe mm-hmm. because so many things that you read, it's like, you could read that and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, it feels heavy. And it feels like, again, you know, so much of it's about failure things that you you're not doing well. Yeah. And that can feel like such a, like, like you're like you're losing. Yeah, yeah. Demoralizing. Like you're losing, like there's so much work mm-hmm. that more work I have to do this. And instead into the reframe of it about how you can take this thing that you are pre-programmed to and use it as such a benefit to the rest of your life. Like how have you seen people or what example do you have or advice do you have for people to take what they, you know, they take the quiz, they find themselves and they're like, ha ha yeah, that's me. There's my failing. How do you tell people to, to retrain yourself and see it I, in, in this positive aspect, or at least just not negative? <laughs> you know, what you're describing is there's a term for that in, in the psychology world, which is like taking a strengths based approach. And to me, it is the smarter approach. It is the direction of the future of mental health. And what that means is instead of the way we currently do it, which is to examine a person for everything that's wrong with them and what their quote unquote disorders are, we're going to 
first mine for strengths. What are you doing well? What comes so easily and so natural to you that you don't even realize it's a gift? That is always the first invisible question in my mind when I meet with a new client. Like, what does this person do so well? And then you maximize that thing because the person is already doing it so well instead of this approach we have now, which is like a dumb, dumb approach of let's take your weaknesses and let's try to churn them into strengths. And we do that at the opportunity cost of like letting our strengths just sit idle on a shelf because we're trying to be this version of a human being that is only strengths. And that's not real. We're, as a human being, you will always have weaknesses and limitations. And even if you do manage to change your weaknesses to strengths, because you're going to grow and change, you're going to develop new weaknesses or discover new weaknesses. And so that approach that you're describing is called a strengths-based approach. It is the approach we should take with our children, with ourselves, with our partners, with our friends. And I think the way to offer a next step is to think of the word perfect. And the word perfect, its Latin root is perficere, per, complete, and facere, done. And so the word perfect means complete. It means whole. And if you think of yourself as someone who is already whole, you're already complete, the day that you were born, you deserved all the love, dignity, joy, connection, and freedom that anybody could ever offer you. Those five things are birthrights. They are not earned, okay? And you deserve all of those things just by nature of being a human being. And that I think is what perfection really means. It doesn't mean flawlessness. That's why we say when someone, oh, this person's a perfect stranger. We're not saying they're a flawless stranger. We're saying this, this is a complete stranger to me. And so just entertaining the idea in this very misogynistic world, what if you don't need one more thing, not even half a thing to add to yourself before you are whole, ready to show up in the world, ready to be yourself and live the life you want? What if there's nothing wrong with you? That is the spine of my whole book. It's what I think you don't need to buy my book to ask yourself that question. So please just ask yourself anyway. It's not a rhetorical question. What if there's nothing wrong with you? It's just a mindset. Mm -hmm. Really? It's a mindset shift. What if there's nothing wrong with you? What if this is a superpower? What if it's all going to be, you know, if I don't do the dishes, it's going to be fine. You know, just all of the ways in which we tangle ourselves up in the thoughts. And I really appreciate the fact that you've written this book to help people who can overthink or, um, you know, sort of high achievers, people who yeah. are ambitious, you know, you can't be a perfectionist without being ambitious and you can't, you can't, and then it's okay. Ambition. And then not just okay, but wonderful. You know, another last way to think about it is like, when I say like, what if there's nothing wrong with you? I don't mean like you must not need any support. I mean, like, what if you don't need correction? You just need connection. You know, think about it that way. Of, there's nothing wrong with you that you need to fix, eradicate, correct. There are just parts of yourself that you need to reconnect to. Support systems, community that you need to connect to in order to feel your, you know, healthiest and, and most whole. 
I just was thinking this while you were saying that. And I was remembering because my messy perfectionism likes like a challenge, right? Yeah. I like the like start like something new and, you know, you get bogged down. So I was having a conversation. This is just a, an example from my own personal life of I was having a conversation with a friend about something that I was trying to do. And I was trying to like, let go of, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm really having a hard time. Yeah. And she was like, well, you know why? I was like, I don't know, you know, failure, this, all these things. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be the best at letting go. <laughs> I'm going to be perfect at letting go. And I like gave myself this challenge. Yeah. And instead of seeing it as a failure, I like kind of rebranded it. And I was like, nope, I'm going to be really good at this. Yeah. And then it was a much easier goal to set for myself because it didn't seem like I was failing at something. It seemed like a challenge, but I was achieving the same goal. Right. Well, what you're describing a value shift and aligning your actions with that value, like your value is not holding on to everything and figuring out how to balance it all. Your value is understanding your priorities and releasing the rest. And if that's your value, then you celebrate the release. And it's no longer a failure. You're no longer dropping the ball. All of that language no longer applies. I love that example. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I just like, there's a little piece of my crazy. Um, <laughs> but listen, I really, I, I love this book. I'm so excited for your next book. I think that your perspective is so important and so smart and so relevant to especially the second shift community. So Catherine, Thank you so much for your time and for writing this amazing book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. Thank you. And if anyone would like to connect, I'm on Instagram at Katherine Morgan Schaffler. And you can find the book and more of my work on my website, KatherineMorganSchaffler.com. I've already heard from like four friends that I've sent this to where I was like, you got to take the quiz. And they all were like, can she be my therapist? (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait to get back to practicing. It's the soul of my work. I miss it a lot. All right. Well, I will put all that information as well into the links with the podcast. Thank you. This was so lovely. I really really appreciate you having me on. Take care. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.